Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, it is Oscar season. Finally, we're almost at the end of the award season, so we can move on and talk about something else. But for now, it's the final one. It's the final one, creme de la creme of the award season. I am getting award season fatigue because we've been saying a lot of the same names. Yeah. But the thing I like about Oscars is that people seem to be more focused on snubs for Oscars than anything else. It's like you don't often hear about the Golden Globe snubs or the Critics' Choice Award snubs, but the Oscar snubs you do hear about. And so I like that aspect of it because it's more fervent debate about who should have been nominated. This Oscars are clear. It's Oppenheimer seems to be the one who's at the top right now. Obviously, Barbie there too. But there were some snubs. It's um, I'm very annoyed because my favorite movie. Iron Claw? Iron Claw. But you were going to say Poor Things because I haven't seen it yet, but I know it's also like in the top three. Yeah, neither have I, but 11 nominations. Yeah. I mean, it looks amazing. It looks looks visually amazing. Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, the director, Yorgos Lanthimos. He did The Favorite, which was a great movie. But I haven't seen it, and no one wants to watch it with me because they see the trailer, and they're like, yeah, I'll pass. But it's gotten a bunch of nominations. But let's talk about the snubs because a bit of controversy around Barbie. So Mario Robbie didn't get nominated. Uh, Greta Gerwig didn't get nominated. For director. Uh, for director, yes. And then America Ferreira got nominated. Yeah. Ryan Gosling got nominated for Best Supporting Role. I have my thoughts on this. I know everyone's complaining that like those two didn't get nominated, but Ryan Gosling got nominated. I don't think anyone should have gotten nominated for Barbie. I think maybe Greta Gerwig is director. Well, so she got nominated for uh, Adapted Screenplay, sure. which I think – is valid with her her writing partner, Noah. I mean, the coming up with a script for a movie when you're basing it off of a character that's really just a doll, although a doll has significant meaning and there's all these different versions of her, I think give her some credit for that yes. because there's not a ton of source material there, at least not literary. But the ironic thing is the fact that Ryan Gosling as Ken got yeah, nominated when Barbie and the director <laughs> didn't, that's like the whole point of the I movie. Know is that it's this patriarchy world and it's all wacko and men run everything and make these decisions and they're biased and this and that. And it's like impossible to be a woman because you have to be all these different things, some of which are inconsistent. So I think that is the most Barbie thing is that they, the that, lead that actress <laughs> and the director didn't get nominated, but Ken did. Although I thought Ryan Gosling was fine. I agree with you. It did well box office. I think it is a good movie and the fact that people are talking about it is great, but like, and it's visually, you know, it was pretty and somewhat thought provoking, but it was, it's not an Oscar movie. I didn't think so. No, I thought like clearly Oppenheimer is an Oscar movie. Yes. uh, And Barbie is like a, a a fun, ironic 
thought-provoking movie, but it was more fun and done to like make money, not necessarily. Exactly. Win it's a war. box office hit that had some good commentary. It was fun to watch. But then why I'm nominate sorry. why nominate Gosling? D- just don't nominate anyone. Like America Ferrera was like okay <laughs> in this movie. Definitely di- I didn't come out of that movie being like America Ferrera, like she's gonna get Oscar nominated. You know what I mean? I'd even think Ken like Ken would get not or Ryan Gosling. If anything, Billie Eilish uh for the song maybe get gets nominated. Well, she, she did. did. But uh yeah, and then you're not gonna you're not going to even give anything to Iron Claw. Or to to Zach Efron or to Jeremy Allen White for supporting, but like Ryan Gosling for Barbie. It, it's just weird. The whole thing was weird. It is weird. And so Whoopi Goldberg had a take where she's like, there are no snubs, right? This is a creative thing that's voted on. You're, it's subjective. Not everyone's going to like everything. And the yeah. voters aren't necessarily going to agree with you. I mean, I hear you. That's the thing. I mean, that's why people debate because like it is subjective. And so inherently there's going to be people that think there are snubs. I remember walking out of Oppenheimer thinking, wow, this might be like the best, you know, movie of the year. The performances, the pacing, the tone, the the gravitas of it all. And Nolan, best director, Killian Murphy, best actor, Emily Blunt, uh best supporting actress. That, that was good. I can see her, but um, what's her face? Florence Pugh should have then also gotten a nomination as well. She was pretty good in it. But she was only in it for like a couple That's minutes. That's true. That's true. Well, I guess they both kind of were. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that is like a good ensemble cast. That all makes sense. I know other people are talking about how, you know, Michael Mann's- RDJ uh, deserved uh, R- the RDJ got it. But for other movies like Iron Claw, Michael Mann's Ferrari didn't get nominated. Priscilla by Sofia Coppola didn't get nominated. People are talking about Nicolas Cage getting nominated in Dream Scenario, which I haven't seen, but looks pretty dope. But look, it's going to be a star-studded event, so you get the big ones in there. Right, so March 10th, ABC, hosted by Jimmy Kimmel, which you said last episode. And let's talk about a few Best Picture noms that you actually did like. So I know your your Paulie went to Iron Claw, and Iron Claw didn't get nominated but you loved American fiction. I did. You loved Holdovers. I did. If I'm looking at the list here, so the, the best picture knobs, uh, the Holdovers, American fiction, Zone of Interest, Barbie, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, Maestro, Killers of the Flower, Moon. You know, I look at this list and I'm like, who would I give it? Like, I, I think it's Oppenheimer. I don't know who else. Uh, I'd be surprised if anybody else gets it in terms of like a movie that like American fiction was a good movie. I'd be surprised if it got an award. Holdovers was a good movie. But like when I think of best picture, I don't know who you, you, you like uh, Oppenheimer, who else would Oppenheimer, get it? Like, yeah. That was the movie. Past Lives, I turned on and then turned off after five minutes. Jessica loved Past Lives, which I think was A24. It was A24. I hear it's amazing. I think I wasn't in the mood. So I put it on the plane. And then I was getting antsy, so I switched over to uh, <laughs> Spider-Man um, Across the Spider-Verse, which I've seen like four times now, which so, also didn't get nominated. Or no, did he get nominated for an It did, animated Best film? Animated. Oh, it yeah, did. yeah, yeah. Get nominated for Best Animated Film. Spider-Man and Elemental both got nominated for an- Best Animated. Yeah. So I was going to say, Past Lives, Jessica described the plot to me, and I was like, this is exactly like a movie that I saw at the New York Indian Film Festival, which isn't going to get nominated, so I'm going to not watch this because <laughs> I I felt like, you know, more love for the South Asian film community. But in any event, good for them. A24. A24 had two, Past Lives and Zone, Zone of Interest, which I haven't seen. I yet. haven't seen that either. But they have, they, they're present. Best Actress, I'm going to go with Lily 
Gladstone? Yeah, Lily Gladstone from Killers of the Flower Moon. I told you I walked out of Killers of the Flower Moon. I got antsy. It was too quiet and it was too warm in the theater. And I was fidgeting too much. And I had, I was, an, I still had an hour and a half left of the movie. I was in there for two hours. I just got up and walked out. So I'm waiting for it to come on streaming so I can finish the movie. I, I'm not saying it was a bad movie. I enjoyed it, but I think I'd enjoy it watching it at home. It's just too long. Yeah. Maybe it's something about our attention spans. <laughs> yeah. Best director. What are your thoughts on best director? I'm just l- l- got Jonathan Glazer's Zone of Interest, Yorgos Lanthimos, Poor Things, Christopher Nolan, Oppenheimer, Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon, and Justine Triette, Anatomy of a Fall. I'm guessing this is where people thought maybe Greta Gerwig should get a nomination. Hard to say she shouldn't have, but it's it's like I said, subjective. I have only seen Oppenheimer of these five. Uh, I'm going with Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm going with Christopher Nolan. Like, you walk out of that movie and you're like, how did this guy do this? Like, it's beautifully shot, beautifully directed, the ensemble cast, the the writing, everything is good. Like, to me, that's what a director is, is, you know, the film is a great film. He put together a masterpiece. So give it to him. Just give it to him. Let him clear the Oscars and, uh, and then Iron Claw, you know, will get its revenge one day. Let's do one more. VFX, okay? The creator, which you loved. love. <laughs> I know. I'm like the only one who's seen that movie. Godzilla Minus One, which you fell asleep in, but it appreciated. <laughs> Guardians 3, which you love. Mission Impossible yeah. Dead Reckoning Part 1. And Napoleon, which I don't think you like. No, no. I, I didn't see that one, but I heard it was not great. Look, I, I think this goes to Godzilla Minus One because by the time I was awake... It was a really low budget movie and the effects looked like it was a two hundred million dollar movie. Well, Creator was actually not that expensive either. I think it was that's only true. Million. That's true. But Godzilla minus one was like you you're like it's like you're watching a Christopher Nolan film, but there's a Godzilla in it. Oh wow. That's how it that sounds it. amazing. Good description. Uh okay, so we'll go with Godzilla minus one, visual effects. Well, yeah, let's uh, let's see what ends up happening here. Hopefully, uh hopefully I'll be right on the on the VFX one. Let's take a quick break and we'll talk about the DGA who didn't strike getting the benefit of what the WGA negotiated. The last summer was the summer of dueling strikes. WGA and SAG both strike against the AMPTP and there was a major Hollywood shutdown. The one union that related the DGA, which represents all the directors, did not strike. Their agreement expired and they renewed it upon expiration. And they didn't necessarily endure collectively bargained labor strife. The DGA members of the DGA might have been out of work just as a result of the fact that Hollywood was more or less shut down for a few months. But they didn't actually go to toe-to-toe with the AMPTP and say, we are not going to agree to these terms without a fight. So they basically, whether you want to say they rolled over, they negotiated up until the deadline, whatever, they did not strike. But now, last week, they've announced that they revisited terms with the AMPTP, and then they ended up getting a lot of the concessions that were in the WGA agreement. Notably, the participation in the streaming winner's bonus, the 50% bump in residuals, if you're on a show that's viewed by 20% of the users of a platform. In 90 days. I mean, it's very possible that the DGA was on the sidelines and, and you know, handshake deals were being done 
like with the other, like with the WGA, et cetera, like, Hey, we'll kind of support you from the sidelines here. Like, is that possible that people would do something like that? Like, like why, unless they just didn't have the bandwidth, like it seems like everyone was united here unless directors, like I, I would imagine that the directors wanted to be united with the actors and the writers. Yeah. I mean, I think that the idea is, a lot of directors are also writers right. or started out as writers. So there is overlap in the union. If you remember, we did an episode 245. We interviewed Melanie Chandra. She talked about how she often wore multiple hats. She's an actress, but sometimes she's writing, sometimes she's producing. So there is an element of that. If you're a member of both and WJ is on strike, then you're on strike, even though you may, you may be able to render directing services, but like, what are you directing if nothing's being made? Right. But I, I think their concerns as unions are a little different because, for example, I don't think AI was as front and center a concern for the DGA as it was for writers or actors. Got it. Yeah. Because I don't know that we're going to have like AI on set. Directing. Robots yeah. directing. Maybe, yeah. you know, possibly, but that didn't seem like as much of a concern. But I think it also makes it a little challenging because while the WGA was striking, the SAG agreement expired and DGA did not strike. And so the AMPTP said to SAG, you know, right before their deal was about to expire, before the strike started, hey, we'll just offer you what the DGA accepted. That should be good enough, right? Because the direct, in terms of the increases to minimum compensation, pension, health, and welfare, those sorts of things. SAG went above and beyond. They made it was a very public, vocal, um, dynamic strike. And I think the idea that this whole thing was like orchestrated, it's not, I can't rule it out. Yeah. Meaning that the DGA and the AMPTP had some agreements like, hey, we're not going to strike because we know that'll impact your negotiations with SAG. But when it's all resolved, you need to take care of us. I don't understand why AMPTP would reopen the deal once they've got a negotiated three-year deal, like what incentive they would have to do that. But it seems like it would be highly controversial for the DGA to make this side deal that says, hey, we're not going to strike, but we want the benefit of whatever the other unions get. So the other way to do it, the other way to do it is if you're them, you're kind of like, we're just going to kind of sit on the sidelines here and let these guys battle it out and then come back in and uh, see what all the terms are and see if we can get it too. I mean, sure. And that may be exactly what happened, but I guess practically speaking, if you can't make a film because you can't have actors and you can't have writers, then the directors are sitting there like not working either. So they were all probably impacted in similar ways. But if I were a writer, you know, let's say you're, you know, doing your Runyon Canyon hike and you stop by Starbucks and you got your, a bunch of your writer friends and then you see some directors and they like <laughs> didn't strike, but now they get the same terms. Yeah. I'd be a little frustrated, yeah. right? It's like, well, you know, I was sweating bullets, maybe missing rent or mortgage payments because I was, I had a deal on the table, but I didn't accept it. And my family was like, when are you going to start working again? And the directors didn't, really have any of that strife, right? They just kind of kept going. So I could see them being a little like, hey, you know, that doesn't seem like they earned it. Yeah, but at the same time, like, what are you going to do? Like, have them now strike so that they can, you know, feel like they've they've done the work as well? No, you have them agree to the terms they accepted, yeah. right? Like, you accepted. I see what you're saying. I see you know, what you're saying. Versus like- These com- reduced- yeah. 3% escalators as opposed to five. You didn't get it. You accepted a three-year deal without a streaming bonus. So I don't understand, you know, listen, every everyone's like pro-talent. So you would want the directors to get treated well, but if they didn't fight for those terms, then I could see someone saying, well, why would they get the benefit of that? To present this back, it's um, 
uh, DGA says, okay, you know what? We're, we're, we're putting our hands up. We're going to agree to these terms. Uh, WGA fights for like better terms. They, you know, go longer. They sacrifice more. They get their terms. And then, and then the DGA is like, uh, yeah, I like those terms as well. Can we get those terms? Right. And they, in theory, they agreed to a three year deal. So I could understand the DGA getting the benefit of the WGA terms in two and a half more years. But to get them now, that seems like, you know, having your cake and eating it too. I don't know. It doesn't, it's not wrong. It's just, it, it seems like if I were a writer or an actor who really, you know, fought to strike and dealt with that stress of, hey, you know, we have a deal that's been offered to us, but it's not good enough. We need to keep fighting. Um, and then the DGA didn't do that, but then they got the benefit. As I say, like work smarter, not harder. Sure. I guess they did take the risk. They took the risk that the AMPTP was not going to reopen their deal and give them these concessions. But maybe it's like from an accounting and all these other perspectives, it's like harder to treat them differently, you know, different formulas or whatever. But good for them, I think, overall, get the benefit of what the writers negotiated without having to strike. I think, like you said, working smarter as opposed to harder. Uh, and we'll see. You know, maybe maybe this is the sort of thing you can only do once. Yeah. Maybe if they do it again, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if they're in three years, if they don't strike and then six months later, they get the benefit of what the unions that did strike agreed to. If there is another strike, that would be suspect. But maybe they're just sort of telegraphing that they're like, hey, we'll we'll play ball when the when it comes time to renegotiate. But we want you to benefit us as if we had. Well, let's take a break and uh, we'll get back and talk about Peacock and their uh, growing numbers. So back in episode 220, we just got, we covered this. This is eight months ago. Comcast and the NFL were in a negotiation involving a bunch of different things, one of which was the NFL Network. And it came out that the NFL agreed to grant Peacock exclusive rights to one playoff game on January 13th, 2024. So in eight months' time. At that time, the NFL announced that you know they were expanding their commitment to streaming and they were going to start auctioning one playoff game per season to a streamer. And for the entire history of, you know, my being a fan of the NFL, the playoff games have always been on broadcast and available nationwide. This is the first time that they've done an exclusive playoff game for streaming. And at the time we did that episode, we mentioned that Peacock paid 110 million for this game. At that time, they had 22 million subscribers Fast forward to January 2024 when this game happened. It happened January 13th, and it was the Kansas City Chiefs hosting the Miami Dolphins with Taylor Swift in attendance because her boyfriend is on the Chiefs. Peacock had roughly 30 to 31 million subscribers. And for that game, apparently, analysis is saying they gained 2.8 million just for that game. Subscribers for that game. Yeah. This goes to show just the power of sports and specifically the NFL in the United States when it moves the needle that much for a streaming service, you know, especially in times where streaming is really tough. Peacock grew fourth quarter revenue by 57%, surpassed a billion 
you, you just mentioned 31 million paying subscribers. The NFL stuff is working. The exclusive NFL stuff is working. It's interesting that the Chiefs Dolphins were the first, it was the first time an NFL playoff game was available nationally on streaming. It was broadcasted in Kansas City and Miami locally. But I think, I think that's a, a, a key point for them. Like streamers who are not like sports is a big deal. And obviously, specifically, the NFL is a big deal. So fans were frustrated with this, obviously, because if you didn't live in Kansas City or Miami and you didn't have Peacock, then how you couldn't watch the game. Maybe you'd go to a bar or something. Yeah. But this is like a first. So a lot of people, 30 million people had Peacock. Another couple million signed up for Peacock. Whether they did a free trial or a month and then canceled, it remains to be seen. So I don't know how many of those subscribers are going to stick. But even if they just paid for a month, at 3 million people, let's say the average is 8 bucks a month because the ad tier is 5.99 and the pay t- the ad free tier is 12. So let's just say that's like 250 million, yep. right? Roughly. So that was worth it for the game if the game cost 110, so it was a good decision for for Comcast. Now if those people stuck around, that's an even better decision. A couple stats. This game apparently accounted for 30% of internet traffic while it was occurring. Wow. It was the biggest live streamed event in US history. 23 million people watched it. I saw that. That's insane. Imagine if this were on like a Netflix or uh, an Amazon Prime where there's four times the subscribers in the US. That would be insane, right? It'd be interesting that if anyone just opened up Netflix and like on the homepage of Netflix is just like there's this live game on and it's like tune in, like, how many people would actually click on that? Um, and especially because the Chiefs right now, regardless if you're a football fan or not, you know who they are because pop culture right now is— They've won two Super Bowls in—, in, re, in you know, They won last year. They won a few years ago. They have arguably the best quarterback, arguably the best active coach, and Travis Kelsey. And a good defense. Travis Kelsey, and then uh, one of the biggest stars in attendance. Like, I think this gives, it proves out a lot of numbers or a lot of like why people spend so much on these NFL deals, what the possibility is if, if it's exclusive streaming. Uh, you know, the, the thing we were reading about this uh, was that sports fans are loyal when it comes to like a platform. Because at least that, you know, on a weekly basis, you're going to be watching something. Like we are, uh, there's a group of us and including people in my family, we're Arsenal fans, and we will stream the Arsenal game. It's usually between Peacock and um, USA Network and like one other platform. But no matter what, like every week, we need to know that we're watching it. So I I am curious, like how this is going to, like what they decide to do moving forward, Um, because they're still, look, they're still losing money. Uh, Peacock lowered the loss. Like they, they lost, uh, 825 million from 978 million for the quarter. They lost two, almost three billion for the year. Yeah. That's a, that's a right now. Yeah. Two, 2.75 billion for 2023. Yeah. And so will, will, um, you know, this, the adding three million subscribers for the NFL and Big Ten football, will that, continue to work out for them. I think they'll probably do more tests around. Well, they also have Oppenheimer I was about to say. streaming exclusively yeah. next yeah, month. February 16th. And here's the thing. I mean, Comcast is a major $170 billion media conglomerate. They have cable. They have NBC. They have theme parks. They have the movie studio, NBC Universal. And, you know, they need Peacock, right? Because from starting in like 2000 until maybe recently, maybe even today, they were the largest cable distributor in America. At some point, they probably had 
mid 20 million cable subscribers. Now they're probably down to in high 14s, which is a significant drop, but that's because a lot of people are cutting the cord. So their predominant business model, which is cable, is declining. They lost maybe like 40,000 broadband subscribers in the final quarter. So if those two businesses are declining, where are they going to grow? It's got to be something like Peacock or Zuma, like a fast platform. They've got very smart leadership. They've got a lot of resources. They have a lot of cash coming in, but they don't want to sit there and just watch their business decline. They need to find another business that's going to grow. Yeah, And I think that's where this is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good analysis. Um, if you look at the uh, you know the earnings report, fourth quarter net income came close to three point three billion, as revenue passed thirty one billion, um, which beat Wall Street's estimates. But that that part that we're talking about specifically around Peacock and streaming is continuing to lose money, but it is it is narrowing, and so it's not a massive part of the business when you think of the comparison to revenue numbers, but it is interesting. Like the, the strategy for them to like get Peacock to work. So Peacock is, is doing well. Let's say they're 33 million after the NFL thing. And let's say they all stay. It's still small compared to Disney plus Netflix, Amazon prime, but it's not Comcast core business, right? They still have time to grow. But I think for Comcast, is there a world where Peacock is a hundred plus million subscribers? I mean, that they're going to have to spend a lot, a of, lot content, of content, yeah. spend a lot for yeah. content on that. But maybe that's the future. They have successful businesses, like I said, Oppenheimer being on Peacock. I think will help. They are going to keep spending. They're projecting that 2023 was peak losses for them. Right. They're projecting three billion ended up being 2.8, and they think from here on out it's going to be. Uh, fewer losses. And it, it's got to be, right? Because you can't spend just to grow. Well, we, we've talked about this in previous episodes. It's companies are getting their balance sheet healthy. That's the game right now. Uh, shareholders need to be content. And I think Comcast is in a position to do that. You know, They've got money to spend. And to the point where they've increased their dividend, they said they're going to boost the dividend by $0.08 cents to a, uh, I think the dividend right now is around 2.5%. That's always a good sign. Um, of, of like a healthy balance sheet. And I think that they seem they can take the risk, right? Like other companies are struggling. Comcast seems to be like, okay, we can keep playing around with this. Like we know what our balance sheet is. We know that we got to, um, you know, we've got money coming in. We can play around a bit here to see how much we can push um, versus like, I think bigger platform, like a Netflix, for example, where the entire company is dependent on a streaming service or like Disney that's had some struggles. So Comcast, I would say like just from like a business perspective and cash perspective are in a good place. Yeah. You know, they're looking to probably buy something yeah. too, but um, good quarter for Peacock. The NFL experiment worked out really well and I'm sure we'll see more of the same. Six bucks a month with ads is not like a crazy expense, especially if you love watching football. And uh, I, I've actually been trying to find shows on Peacock. I mean, I, I'll watch the Premier they have, League on they have, it. They have Premier League too, right? They have, uh, yeah, they have, yeah, exactly. That's where we watch, yeah. um, you know, the Arsenal games. And, and I have friends who are Liverpool fans and they do seem to be doing sports well. I am curious. There's one show I'm interested in that I found that's on Peacock and it's uh, Ted. Uh, it's Ted. Seth MacFarlane's Ted. Oh, right. Which is now got, yeah, Yeah. it's on, it's going to be, it's on Peacock and it's basically the story of Ted, but 
it's a TV series when Ted is a, is is a younger version. Um, and I've been seeing clips here and there, and it looks actually pretty funny. So I might check it out. Let me know what you think. I will. I will report back. Very cool. But Paul, as always, great breakdowns. That's our show for this week, folks. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us at Better Call Paul, the podcast, Instagram, and TikTok. Follow me on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it, at Mesh Lakani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>